Hey everyone, you're listening to The Vent Podcast, your source for market insights, wine industry news, and updates on our current collections. Enjoy the show. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Vent Podcast. My name is Brady. I am the head of investor relations at Vent. And as always, I'm joined by Billy, who is our head of wine. We have another great producer interview to share towards the end of the episode as we have Cushing Donlin from Donlin Family Wines, whose family produces really excellent wines in Sonoma County out in California. So we're excited to dive into a conversation with Cushing and just hear a little bit about what it takes to produce top, top quality wines across many different varietals. But before we hop into the interview, we do just want to provide some platform updates on our current collections and collections that have recently sold out. And first, we do just have to mention the announcement that we made this past Wednesday that we'll be offering our fourth collection of whiskey. We tend to keep our whiskey offerings at about 20% of our total collections on the Vint platform, and of course the other 80% in wine. This collection that we just announced, the Glen Farkless Pagoda Collection, is a $129,000 collection in total value. There are 3,000 shares being offered at $43 a share, and there are five bottles in this collection. I'll turn it over to Billy to go over some of the highlights of this collection, um, and just to dive a little bit deeper into what makes this offering so special. Thanks, Brady. Just to clarify, this collection's not live yet. It's going live next Wednesday, uh, March 30th. Um, and it's it's really exciting. It's kind of, for those of you who remember our Karizawa collection, um, that was a unique collection of 36 bottles in a series. The series is only five total bottles. Um, and right now, there are no, as of this recording, at least no public offerings for a full collection of this of these whiskeys outside of from the the retailer themselves so that's really exciting um it consists of kind of there are five bottles but they're broken into kind of two different cohorts one is kind of a, if you will the the metal trilogy uh they have a bronze a silver and a gold pagoda reserve um and these are going to be 43 48 and 59 years respectively and then there's a kind of what you would call like um a uh, precious precious stone series um sub series if you will there's a reserve a ruby reserve and a sapphire reserve uh but taking one step back why are these called the pagoda series um if glenn farkless is obviously based in scotland there was a guy by the name of charles doig d-o-i-g um in the late 1800s who was helping different distilleries design elements of their uh facilities and what was kind of crucial for everywhere else is after you malt the barley, you need to dry it out somehow. And they do typically use a kiln. There was a kiln where they would put this in and they would dry out the, the bar or the mash, I guess you would say at that point, um, the malted barley. And these kilns were basically towers that had some sort of top at um, the top. And basically there was really no function to this, but Charles really loved the Eastern um, kind of East Asia aesthetic. And he decided to put a pagoda looking like top on his, what they, they were basically called um, ventilators at the top of these kilns. So where the air would escape, he wanted to decorate it and make it a little bit more nice. Um, this was in Victorian England at the time. So everything was a little bit more ornate. So he put this pagoda like top um, at the top of his ventilators. And Glenn Farkless has a very distinct uh, pagoda style of ventilator um it went out of use in 1972 um as they opened up their 
visitor center but this is kind of an homage this whole series is an homage to that pagoda and the history of glenn farkless as a whole um again the the whiskeys range in age from 43 to 63 years old they were hand-picked by uh stephen notman who is a keeper of the quash um basically like a essentially a whiskey sommelier ambassador from scotland um basically an ambassador for scotch he's uh, reviewed and judged many whiskey competitions. And then it was also selected in tandem with George Grant, who is sixth generation Glenn Farkless family owner. So these barrels are, are very special. Um, and to fit that they're going into these special, as Brady mentioned, decanters that are Glen Cairn crystal. Uh, they're emblazed with some, uh, precious metals with some silver. Um, and also the, the Ruby and Sapphire editions also have rubies and sapphires. So it's a very, very ornate collection. It's the oldest collection ever released by Glenn Farkless. And, uh, yeah, we're excited to have one of the, the only complete collection available for investors outside of the, the company themselves. Yeah. Not only is, you know, this kind of an exclusive collection, given that, um, you know, it's only us and the uh, retailer that are able to provide the full collection, but we were also able to acquire these bottles at quite a steep discount, a little more than 17% discount to retail. Um, can you maybe talk a little bit, a little bit about that and just the pricing in the marketplace right now and why there's just so little pricing information? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I can't go into too many specifics, but what I can say is we we worked with our network of suppliers to to find these bottles and be able to source them at a at a price that would allow us to list them um you know we have our typical sourcing fee but allow them to still be listed for our investors at a at a, a market discount to the price and yeah so right now if you look online uh the glenn farkless pagoda series has its own website and uh they're selling the full collection at one hundred fifteen thousand pounds which comes out to about one hundred fifty thousand dollars. um you know that's the exchange rate varies. So how much, but that exact percentage, our differences with theirs is going to, it's going to manage, but um, yeah, this is something that's a value you get with Vint. Uh, we, we go out, we're doing a lot of the legwork. We're working with partners to identify unique, special things that are not easy to source. And um, we're looking to pass on as, as much of the, the value as we can to our investors when we find something cool. And we've seen really strong, um, uh, interest in whiskey over the last couple of collections that we've released. Um, it seems that, you know, we, we typically will only be featuring about 20% of our collections as whiskey um, for the time being, but we've gotten really great reception, um, you know, our, our last collection in Japanese whiskey. I think there's a lot of interest in the marketplace right now, um, especially for diversifying portfolios in wine and spirits. Uh, whiskey is becoming extremely popular. Yeah. Yeah. And something like this, so, and also I want to Kind of differentiate. There's been kind of a trend by some distilleries to make these limited edition collections, and all they're really doing is putting, you know, 20 year old whiskey or 18 year old whiskey into like fancy right. bottles. Um, and this is like genuinely very old whiskey that spent a lot of time in barrel. And and for those who don't know, the longer whiskey spends in barrel, obviously it continues to develop, but it loses alcohol. So to be called Scotch whiskey, it needs to maintain it'd be bottled at at least 40% alcohol. Um, and it's very rare to have a barrel last this many years and still qualify for that 40%. So um, these are genuinely special barrels, you know, spent their whole lives at the distillery. So they're getting a uh, equally special, you know, kind of packaging and display as well. 
Yeah, that, that's really exciting. You know, it's nice to uh, when we think about the different trends in, in whiskey around the world right now, obviously scotch has always kind of been um, penultimate, but, you know, it was, um, I think has been really nice for our users and investors to see, uh, you know, we've had diff- very, uh, very different kinds of whiskey collections, first with the Baumwort actual cask whiskey, um, and then the Macallan and Glenfarclas scotches, as well as then our Japanese whiskey. So we've, even though we've only had a few whiskey collections so far, I feel like we've really uh, covered some good corners of the market. Yeah, for sure. And we'll continue to explore, you know, bourbon's definitely on our radar and, mm-hmm. and there's a lot more that we can work with. So um, yeah, no, we're, we're excited to keep these cool whiskey collections coming. Um, but if, if we want to transition on now, so again, for, for everyone, this collection goes live next Wednesday, March 30th. Um, yeah, we've had a, a lot of interest um, after we sent our announcement out yesterday. So be sure to get on and reserve your shares early so you don't miss out. Um, but speaking of missing out, uh, if you didn't invest in our rosé collection, it is too late. That has officially sold out as of uh, Tuesday this week. So uh, thank you for everyone who invested in those shares. You got some got some gems. Yeah, the, the rosé champagne collection, uh, you know, kind of released as a a flash sale. Uh, we kind of just dropped it on our platform uh, without announcing it beforehand. And uh, we we really like the style of, of being able to offer uh, collections that maybe are unexpected and a little bit different than you might find um, um, elsewhere in the marketplace. You know, Rosé Champagne is definitely having its day right now, um, but isn't the first thing that I think folks think about when they think of um, investable wines. Um, but Rosé Champagne um, has had an incredible 2021, even um, a bottle of rosé champagne topping the champagne um, list this past year. Yeah, traded by value, that is. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, champagne had a huge, huge year as a whole. And it's just putting more focus on on these rosé champagnes that are that are rare and only made in really special vintages. So so that's exciting. But yeah, like Brady said, stay tuned. We're going to be continuing to, um, you know, test different and work with different um, collection sizes and you know, we're going to have some more of these surprises down the line. So, so stay tuned and make sure you get some of these smaller collections before they sell out. Uh, now, moving on here, you know, speaking of general news, we have some big vent news. Uh, Brady, do you want to let everybody know about our, our newest employee? Yeah, we're really excited to um, have added another employee to the vent team and really start building out um, um uh, the, the business development side um, of our company. So we were able to bring on L Seibold um, to be the director of business development here at Vent. And so she's going to work very closely with um, uh, myself um, and Billy and Jordan on the marketing side um, to really continue to um, find ways to grow the Vent business and to bring more users from different corners of the market in, onto the Vint platform. Um, so we're really excited to have her. She has a ton of experience, um, uh, both in wine and in business. Um, Elle is WSET level three um, certified, which is really cool to continue adding folks who are passionate about wine as well. Yeah, and really excited. Elle is our, our first uh, full-time female employee. So we're excited to continue to grow there. And she's, not only that, she's had more work experience than, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of us, um, and it's not just because of her, 
um, long career, but she's also been able to work in everything from Wall Street. She started her own real estate company. She worked in oil and gas. And to end on Brady's point, she's also um, WSET 3 certified. So it's really exciting. We have a, a unique talent here with both experience um, and a lot of enthusiasm for Vint. So we're really excited to have her on board and continue to grow the company. And we've uh, finally have someone in a more central part of the U.S. So we're we're really starting to cover the cover the map in terms of U.S. time zones. So it's it's nice. Um, Elle is based out out of um, the Houston, Texas area, and so we kind of have uh, we're starting to build out the center of the country a little bit more. For sure. And if you're in the Houston area, feel free to reach out to Elle, um, or I guess reach out through the website, and we can connect you with Elle. She'd be happy to happy to connect and talk about how she can help you um, be join the Vint platform. Uh, all right, Brady, is there anything else before we get to um, one of my favorite times of the day to talk about an interesting wine or wines that I've had recently? Yeah, that's, that's what, that's what I was about to transition over to. I want to hear, hear what you've been drinking. We, we had some interesting conversations um, uh, recently about um, wines that we've been exploring, but Honestly, it's been really busy since I came back from France, so I haven't got to um, open up anything super exciting. But tell me about what, what you've been drinking. Yeah, yeah. So I've, I've gone down a bit of a rabbit hole, been transitioning through around uh, not only wine, but ciders and co-ferments. Um, and the two things that I've had interesting, first thing is one is just a, a cider. Um, it was a 2014 Eric Bordelais cider um it was a pear cider um and so if those don't know bordelais is spelled b-o-r-d-e-l-e-t and he's just one of the top cider producers I've, I've always heard about him um his pear ciders are well renowned but i hadn't found one before and this was an eight-year-old pear cider super fresh and it's only like three percent alcohol something like that 3.5 oh wow yeah um so they're i've always kind of been a pear cider fan but these ones where they're like that are so like there's still acid and bubbles that make it so like basically ephemeral on the palate. It kind of disappears. Um, this one had a little bit more residual sugar than some that, so like my significant other kind of found it a little, a little sweet, but I, I thought it was perfect and nicely balanced. So that was the first thing. Um, just not every day you see an eight year old pear cider. Right. Um, tell, tell, tell me about, you said, you know, you said 2014, what's the evolution like for, uh, for ciders? I just have, have no context for, um, you know, what, what the process is and what it's, you know, what, what it means to be drinking, uh, quote unquote, like not aged, but an, an older cider like that. Yeah, this, this was interesting because like, I, I found it in this, um, wine shop here in LA that it was in the sparkling wine section. So picture just a champagne bottle, um, mm -hmm. exact same, you know, uh, closure and everything. So it did oxidate a little bit over time, you know, oxygen's coming in through the cork. So it, it did develop a little bit, but because it's a little less, you know, you know, champagne develops over time, but also the, the bubbles, the CO2 that's in there kind of offsets the access of oxygen to the wine itself. Um, but this one had a little less bubbles. So it was a little bit more developed. It kind of meant me of like an aged Riesling a little bit more. Um, <laughs> it had a little bit more of, yeah, yeah. That little bit of touch of oxygen a little bit more like nuttiness but it was still really light fresh and, and airy you could only really tell in the the color really but, the, but there's um there's effervescence though as well yeah yeah i mean it was bottled with enough 
residual mm-hmm. sugar, I guess, to the point where some of the yeast, you know, it would keep going. So it, it popped, but it was not the same pressure. It was not in the atmosphere as just say a, a champagne or even a Prosecco. It was just kind of closer to like a pet net, um, lightly effervescent level. Yeah, I was, I was watching, um, I, know, I forget if it was a, just a YouTube video or uh, some post on social media where uh, someone was drinking a 1995, um, I think it might've been Dom uh, champagne and it was uh, still so incredibly effervescent in the bubbles, um, which I was just, I guess I was just Im- impressed by that, you know, really high quality champagne and, and just like still the liveliness of the bubbles, even with, you know, that amount of age, how, how long can you see effervescence in, in sparkling wines? You know, I I can't say for sure, but decades and decades for sure. Um, okay. It also depends on the size of the bottle. Um, if it's a, a Magnum, like we mentioned last week, the bigger sure, bottles sure. last longer. Um, but I've I've heard yeah, this, this was this was a this was a seven fifty, and it was you know I mean twenty five years. That's not like a insignificant amount of time, but they were just so lively and, and yeah, fine no, and, and consistent. It was just I was I, yeah I just didn't have a context for understanding that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's really decades though. Um, like the yeah. best vintage champagne isn't really released for 10 years after it's bottled or after it's sure, you know, sure. produced anyway. So you're going to see stuff for, for many decades. Um, yeah. I, I don't know where exactly I'm sure there is a, a point of diminishing return. Um, and eventually it does become still, but it's, I think that takes a really long time if it's stored properly. Right, right, right. I so mean, I can, and it, yeah, yeah, I was going to say, the stored properly. I recently had a bottle of, what was it? Was it Ruinart? Yeah, that we got, that I got randomly. I had noticed it was at a top shelf in the shop that I was at, but I didn't really pay attention. And thinking about it in hindsight, it was also kind of not a very well ac shop here in Los Angeles. So I brought that home and it was basically like skunked and had no bubbles. Oh, no. <laughs> um, oh, no. So that if it's stored, you know, that was upright which wasn't typically bad for sparkling but that was that was absolutely horrible so was that it, was that their blanc de blanc yeah yeah i mean yeah. it tasted nothing like it it tasted sure just like <laughs> dishwater it was horrible but oh um, it's not the producer but that just has to go with like how well you store your wines makes a big difference when that when that happens from just like a retail shop what do you do nothing you just uh don't don't maybe buy there again or uh <laughs> I mean, you could, you could let them know. Um, sometimes some really good retail shops will, you know, will give you another bottle or maybe a discount on your next one. Um, this one wasn't one I had been too much. It was, I was on a mission to find some, some Krug and they didn't have what I was looking for. And I felt bad because mm-hmm. the guy really, he like opened all these Krug boxes for me and they didn't have the the specific um, one I was looking for. So I felt bad. So I felt like I needed to buy something. Um <laughs> So I bought this. Did, Ruinard. Well, you did him a favor. You took the bad Ruinard off his hands. The skunk exactly. <laughs> so I, I like him and I didn't want to complain. So I, I ate that loss and I just probably won't go back there. Sure. Sure. <laughs> but um, before we wrap up here, the other wine that I actually had recently that I thought was really interesting um, was inspired by the Amber Revolution book that I recently read um, was a Slovenian wine made of 100% Zalen uh, grape. S or it's a Z E L E N. Um, and it was really interesting. It was, um, from a producer called, let me bring it up here, but it's from Slovenia and then it's in the Southwest corner. Um, and it's a really interesting 
varietal because it's native to the area. And the producer is Primoz Levrancic. Levrancic. Um, he was featured in this book that I read and it's like a, a, a light, spicy, white varietal. It's, it tends to be made with skin contact. This one had seven days skin contact um, and they normally make it a little bit longer, but even with that seven days, you barely even noticed. And it was just kind of mix of a little bit of like, I don't know, there's some spiciness, some like Sauvignon Blanc, a little touch of like green notes, mm. good acid. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was really cool, but it's from a Southwest corner little area called Vipava Valley or Vipasca Dolina. Um, and it's interesting. It's just an indigenous varietal that, that people are starting to kind of revitalize down there. Um, this grower specifically is makes a couple single bottlings, but, um, yeah, this bottle was called Burja, B-U-R-J-A, from outside of the town of Burja down there. So uh, that was that was really cool. It's a varietal I never had, and I think if you guys ever see it, you should check it out. That's really, that's really cool, especially even, like, you know, to have, I mean, in an area like L.A., to have access to wine shops and wine bars where you're bringing in a lot of uh, unique things is is really a treat, isn't it, I guess? And um hopefully we'll start to see see shops and bars like that around the country that are exploring um you know kind of off the beaten path varietals and such yeah yeah we're we're certainly lucky and that was i saw this bottle while we were actually getting it's one of those wine bars slash retail shops now that you know they mm-hmm. turned into a retail shop during the pandemic and uh i was picking out a bottle for our table actually um they're like hey, you know what do you want for the next round and then I saw this one and I was like, I'm not getting this for the table. I have no idea what it's going to taste like, but <laughs> I want it. So then I just grabbed it for myself. Yeah. Well, one, we haven't tasted, well, we haven't been together uh, to be able to taste since um, our company retreat, but it'd be really cool to, to next time be able to taste some, some stuff that you're able to drink a little bit more often that, you know, don't have quite as much access to, although they did just open up a, um, there's a low intervention, natural wine shop um, and a lot of local um, when I say local, I think I mean kind of like regional mid-Atlantic, um, uh, producers, a, a shop that just opened recently here in Richmond. Um, I haven't gotten down there yet. The two times I've actually tried to go down, they were, they were closed, but I'm trying to sneak down and see if I can uh, pick up something that's a little bit more interesting we can share. Yeah, no, that'd be a blast. And, um, in the meantime here for our, our listeners keep going out, trying new things, but, um, I, I will say our we transition into our interview here. I'm pretty, pretty excited for everybody to listen to Cushing's interview and, and what the Donnellan family is trying to do with varietals that are not, I mean, they're mainstream. It's predominantly mm-hmm. they work a lot with Syrah, but they're underappreciated in my point of view. So it's, it's really interesting to kind of run the gamut from something like a Cabernet to a Syrah, which people think they know, but they may not know that well. And then something that's completely obscure that you don't know. And I think people are more open than ever to trying these. So I'll encourage everyone to keep trying. Yeah. And Cushing gives us a lot of great context for, um, you know, what they're doing out in Sonoma um, right now, uh, highlighting, trying to highlight uh, more varietals than you might necessarily see um, in that area growing together. And so it's, yeah, a really great interview. Uh, We think you guys will enjoy. So without further ado, here is Cushing. Thanks for having me. So I'm the marketing director at Donlin Wines. Uh, it's a winery that was started by my father uh, over 20 years ago. So family owned and operated. Uh, my brother is director of sales and our father um, runs runs the whole ship operation. Uh, before that, I was in the entertainment business. Um, 
I was developing TV and film for Matthew McConaughey for about five years. Uh, worked for Jason Reitman, talented direct director. And, you know, I love the entertainment business. Uh, and the transition into the wine business wasn't too, uh, I guess, dissimilar in terms of, you know, building projects, man-made projects, time and energy that goes into it, uh, packaging it, bottling it, and getting it out to the masses where taste is subjective. Um, it, it seemed like a natural fit for me. And wine has always been around the the table in the Donlin household. So it's definitely something I, I enjoyed and had an interest in. Yeah, that's awesome. Can you... I guess, yeah, maybe take one step back too. How did your family get into the the winemaking business? Um, I, I know we were talking about this offline, but it's interesting that your family was originally East Coast and moved over here and kind of caught the bug almost collectively as a whole family rather than just one person. Yeah, so, we, you know, we definitely grew up in the Northeast and um, wine was always a part of um, Sunday dinners. We had, you know, family dinners every every weekend and I guess my father really got interested in wine in the 80s and 90s through his travels. Uh, his original work was uh, a paper broker. So he bought and sold high quality reams of paper. Didn't work for Dunder Mifflin, but it was a, a rival company. And to entertain his suppliers and distributors, he would take them wine tasting, you know, first in uh, California. Um, and then they would go to Europe. And he really fell in love with the Rhone region. But every time he came back from his travels, he would introduce uh, a different wine, which was tied to a, a culture, you know, a people, a time period, um, you know, inspired by many different things. It was almost like a history lesson uh, to have around the dinner table. So when he uh, retired from the paper business, he... Uh, decided passively to get into the wine business and quickly within three or four years, it became less of a hobby, more of a, uh, a full-time business endeavor. And so that's when we, uh, you know, firmly established the, the family presence and, and rebranded, uh, under Donlin, our last name. So, yeah. And that was, geez, maybe 15 years ago now. So. Yeah, I don't think there's any any passive getting into wine. Um, I had the same issue once you once you start a little bit, it's either all or nothing, pretty much. Um, so when you guys first started, were you did you establish more like the winery? Was it custom crush? Were you buying fruit? Did you guys select the vineyards first? Um, clearly, he had an idea of varietals he wanted to work with, but how did you go about getting going with that? I, I think, um, yeah, we we definitely knew we wanted to do Rhone varietals. Um, that was the region that my father fell in love with. Um, and when we looked at California, there wasn't too many people. Um, you know, there was the Rhone Rangers, of course. Um, and in, in North Coast, you know, or Sonoma, there wasn't a lot of producers doing all 100% Rhone varieties. And so that was kind of our, um, you know, first to market flag. And being from the outside, we had done our research. We had looked at different properties. We had talked to, you know, 
Robert Parker, who's a close friend of my father's, this guy, Park Smith, who's a legendary wine collector. And they had a lot of great introductions. And so we knocked on a lot of doors. We asked, you know, for some fruit, asked for some favors, but it's, it's like anything, building that trust, that loyalty, knowing that we were going to be good stewards of, of the land, of the property, of their, you know, daily toil. Um, so that's what we did at first. And, um, you know, within three or four years, I think we earned uh, a great reputation and, and respect. Um, you know, I would like to point out, it's like, we didn't go after the, a lot of the famous vineyards. We, we definitely went after come, some of the, you know, secret hidden little gems, just based on the, the research we had done in terms of soil composition and weather patterns and um, temperatures and things like that. That makes a lot of sense. So when, when we say Roan bridles, just for our listeners, they should be familiar from our, our Roan collection. But we're talking Syrah, Viognier, Grenache, um, Marsan Roussan, I assume. What, what, what would be, what did you guys start with? And then what do you guys have, have now? So we were definitely heavy in Syrah. And we wanted to showcase, uh, I guess, our inspiration for northern and southern Rhone. Um, so a lot of Syrah. Um, Grenache, a little bit of Mouved on the red side. And then for the whites, we were doing mostly Roussan, Viognier, and then a little bit of Marsan. Um, we, early on, we had a little bit of Cunois and, you know, Carignan. But um, as time has gone on in the last 20 years, a lot of those vineyards, which we call you know, part of the 7% club where those grapes only make up 7% of, of the wine, maybe not Syrah, but they're being ripped out. They're not being cared for. They're being planted uh, with other grapes that garner um, a higher price point because they're more popular. Um, so it, it, it can be hard for some of those grapes that need a lot of sunshine, a lot of sunlight um, to mature and get that full phenolic ripeness, um, you know, for us to harvest. So moving forward with my brother and I coming into the business, uh, about 10, 12 years ago, we started producing Chardonnay and Pinot Noir being Russian river is our backyard, Sonoma, um, tons of great properties there for Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. And then most recently we started producing, um, Cabernet Sauvignon and, um, that's, that's going to be really exciting. Rounding out our portfolio of 16 different wines right now. That's a large portfolio and, you know, kind of super diverse across different varietals. Um, on, on your website, it says it is comments about how, um, y'all have elected to, um, prize quality above everything else. Um, and that, you know, obviously suggests that there are many different things that a producer might focus their time and energy on. Um, you guys have chosen quality, like, you know, all of the great producers. What does it take to have a hundred percent commitment to quality of whatever it is that you're growing? And especially thinking about looking at a portfolio of 16 different varietals, what does it take to pull that off? Um, you know, for an estate like yours, it takes a takes a really big bank account. Um, no, uh, <laughs> yeah. So what what we mean by that is, 
every step of the way, you're basing your decisions on what what can we do? How can we um, proceed in a way where we are going to be able to produce the the best of what what we're trying to do? And that's you know the best vineyards, the best grapes, the best bottles, corks, labels, winemaker personnel, um, a- absolutely everything. It's not it's not the the most expensive. It's not the most, you know, exclusive. It's, you know, just how can you um, make every decision based on quality um, as opposed to a, a P&L or, or convenience? Um, and I think that's what a, what a boutique winery is, in my opinion, is somebody that is producing uh, something that's very unique, that's one of a kind, that you can't get anywhere else. So that's what we've always tried tried to do, and I think that's why you know you're not going to a you're not going to see a lot of our product in the marketplace just because we we don't offer a lot uh, through wholesale. Um, our wines aren't really made for wholesale. That's a different product, in my opinion, and um a lot of these wines you know are limited we don't make that that much of them uh the vineyards that we're sourcing from our state property um they're small vineyards and in some years you get a great crop in some years you get a, a real thin um crop so before i logged on you know i don't want to i guess make this unevergreen but i just saw a, a a headline where Heidi Barrett, I guess, basically quit Kenzo um, over the 2020, uh, you know, grapes being released. And she probably didn't want that to happen. But I think every producer is going to make the, every great producer is going to make those tough decisions and protect 10, 20, 30 years of, of history um, and bypass, you know, I guess a quick buck or whatever the term is, but that's, that's kind of how we look at it. You know, with Donlin on the label, every decision carries a lot of weight. So we just, we're mindful of that in everything we do. And that's, that's really interesting. A couple other producers. Um, so like Donlin, maybe a little, like you're saying, it's, it's, you basically have to be not in the know, but since you guys don't distribute widely, it's like, you know, somebody who tells you about Donlin, it kind of reminds me a little bit of like Sandlands with, um, Tegan, I can never say his last name, Pasalacqua. Um, Pasalacqua, yeah. And then um, Morgan Twain Peterson over at Bedrock. Some of these guys trying to promote older vineyards, um, lesser known varietals and creating these smaller amounts of, of wine. It's not necessarily made for pure making money. It's not like it's a pure quantity play. You guys aren't just trying to pick the varietals that are hot right now. It's farming these, these vines that you think you can make the best wine and kind of educating people along the way as they get introduced to your wine. So I think that's really cool. Um, on that note, have you, and this has always been something I've struggled with since I got into the sommelier thing and wine just from basically reading sommelier blogs. So like, I've always been kind of a wine nerd from the start. I never had the intro of like, let me have this red that I had growing up. I've always thought Syrahs are amazing for the most part. I started out with the Northern Rhone. I worked in Australia. So I've, I've been on that boat. Why do you think it's had such a hard time catching on in California? I feel like 
it's they're great wines when you have them they're still good but then you put them on a shelf and people are like god oh, i'd rather have a cab yeah i mean it's a, it's a question that we think about on a weekly monthly basis and being able to travel and meet different people and and hear about their experiences um helps helps kind of paint the picture but i think my my biggest thought on it is Syrah is so dynamic in terms of its um, portfolio or, you know, perception or just profile. Um, and what I mean by that is the, the degree of Syrah is like 180 degrees, you know, spread your arms as far as you can. And that is the whole world of, of Syrah. Whereas, you know, Cabernet and Pinot Noir, um, they're, they're more of a narrow, you know, focus, um, you know, less so Pinot Noir, more so maybe Cabernet, you know, they're very monolithic, um, type wines. Um, and so I chalk that up to being easily understandable. Um, and with Syrah having such a wide expansive profile where you have, red fruit, blue fruit, black fruit, you have roast meats, grilled meats, salted, dried meat, and then, you know, all colors of peppercorns, right? Black pepper, white pepper, pink. Um, and then not to mention the floral elements of, of Syrah. There's confusion in the marketplace because you could have a warm climate, you know, Syrah or Shiraz from Australia, and it's got this certain type of profile and then you go to the north coast and you have a Syrah from you know uh the green valley you know with the western pocket of of russian river and it's a more savory um Syrah it it can be a little bit leaner um and so you have two different expressions and unless the consumer knows where the property is and what the climate is because weather and vintage is so important with Syrah um, and really influencing the, the final product. Um, They could want something juicy and jammy, but they get, you know, this very mineral driven, you know, muscular rustic Syrah and, and it just totally um, it burns them basically to where they're less inclined to go back. So uh, to sum it up, I, I think people go with what they know and what they understand and what they feel confident in. Um, and it's just the disappointment factor is much smaller. I guess if you're going for a Pinot or a Cab or a Chardonnay, you know, depending on whether it's $10 or $100, there's there's elements in those wines that are, that are similar across the board. So that's kind of my my thing and what we spend time on is is energy and education uh and, and letting people know why this raw tastes the way it is where it's coming from and and why uh, we think they're just superior um grapes and and bottles of wine so yeah that makes a ton of sense they, even in um when it was in australia it depends where you are obviously the barasa and kind of wherever it had these really the big stress, but then by the coast, you would get, you know, just an hour and a half away, this intensely like acidic, uh, in a good way, um, olive driven, like peppery 
wines, like the most peppery things. And it's there, they're trying to basically call those wines Syrah and the rest of the wines Shiraz. That was the way of like differentiating. And I thought that was interesting, but that's kind of there. They do the same thing with Pinot Grigio and Pinot Gris for drier and um, sweeter styles. But um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think, I guess it does come down to education and understanding that place of origin or where it's coming from. Um, Cause even if you try to make a big red Shiraz, but you're in a cool climate, you're just not going to be able to. So I guess that's where the, that piece kind of comes through. Yeah. I remember, I remember when I was first um, starting to pay attention to wine and I mean, Trader Joe's buying like every, you know, every bottle that, that looked interesting. And I, I remember drinking them and trying to figure out like, okay, what is it that I like about this? What is it that I like about this one? And every time I turn the bottle around, the ones that I liked the most had had some Syrah in it somewhere, right? So it's kind of interesting talking about like the 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 gamut, the hundred eighty degree spectrum of like what Syrah can be. Um, but at least for me, uh, that was and whether I was right or wrong, what I was identifying that I liked in all of those wines uh, ended up being like the consistent feature was that there was Syrah. Um, so that was that's kind of, that was kind of my initial interest in Syrah and I would always then from then on until I you know had a more refined education in wine I would check the back of the bottle and see if there if there was 10 15 20 percent Syrah and something yeah I mean I I would say some of the most popular wines in the in the world you know are are Syrah based and you know there's a lot of um you know quote unquote great Pinot Noirs out there that have some Syrah in them too um, but, but seriously, yeah. Um, you know, maybe people just like the, the sentiment on a, on a smaller dose and, you know, having a hundred percent Pinot Noir or excuse me, Syrah is, uh, is too daunting, um, you know, for, for them, but it's, it's what we love and we're going to continue to, um, to push that. And, you know, who knows, maybe the, the Chardonnay and the Pinot Noir and the Cabernet in our portfolio now are just ways to, to lead people to the Syrah, um, which is, which is still the bulk of what we do. Have you yeah. seen the sentiment change in California or just say the five, 10, 15 year spans around Syrah, especially like talking about North coast. I, I think the pendulum for uh, more, I guess, terroir driven, or uh, more wines that speak of place is, is definitely swinging back through um, as opposed to maybe the, the late 90s, early 2000s, where um, it was definitely about opulence, um, big, bold um, kind, of, kind of flavors. And not to say that's ever going to disappear. The wine style is kind of like fashion, just moves in a circle. And so you have some people that are the iconoclasts and they, they stick to their guns and they do the um, similar things in, in most vintages. Uh, and then you have a, a group of people that are, you know, chasing trends and fads and, and, and things like that. Um, but I, I do believe with the, the wine knowledge increasing across the board, um, you know, more critics, more editorial. Um, there, there's just too much information out there not to have the consumer, you know, become more educated, learn a little bit more. Now, uh, of course, there's, you know, bad stuff, 
you know, out there that can be misleading to consumers. Um, but I think for the most part, we're definitely moving the ball forward. And it, it's funny. I mean, Syrah has been the next big thing for the last 25 years. Mm. It just hasn't um, been able to get out of the gates cleanly for whatever reasons, but it doesn't diminish, um, you know, our drive and in, in producing, you know, more, more great Syrah. I mean, ultimately, you know, the goal, the main goal for Donlin is to become, you know, continue to be a kind of a global appreciated brand and, and wine that is producing wine, not like a specific bottle of wine, like the best Chardonnay, the best, you know, Syrah, Cab, Pinot Noir. I think um, really just needs to be a great bottle of wine. It needs to be representative of the vintage, um, the vineyard, um, the the terroir, what it's telling you, um, you know, made in a in a sustainable way, you know, free of any chemicals, additives, or preservatives, things like that. But I think globally, we can all appreciate a great bottle of wine, right? It doesn't have to be a, a certain grape or a certain region um we can all find the beauty in that it's kind of like music um and, and how we appreciate that it doesn't really matter where where it's from or what style it is um it can still you know move you and uh and speak to you so that's kind of how we ultimately look at it and try to you know blur the lines of the uh, uh the uh, the wine shop that puts all the Pinot together, all the cab together, you know, all that stuff. I think that makes a ton of sense. I and mean, maybe that is partly why the, and we'll, we'll move on from Syrah here for a sec, but maybe that how it's getting a little, needing a little more time for notoriety is like the most famous Syrah based wines in the world are either named after a place like Hermitage or Cornas or Cote Roti, or they're the fanciful brands like Penfolds Grange, which is, you know, mostly Shiraz, Syrah, but, you know, people will drink it and they wouldn't even know. And they'd be like, oh, this is an amazing bottle. So maybe it's now that people are starting to learn more about the Northern Rhone, like we kind of talked about in our collection. Um, and they're kind of thinking about varietals that are in their wines a little more or trying to explore new varietals. They'll, they'll pay more attention, like kind of like Brady did. Um, but speaking about your guys' estates and where Donnellan's going, do you want to talk a little bit more about your the um, efforts with the estate stuff and, and some of the wines you guys or what you guys are doing that's new. Yeah. Um, so we, we talked about how we came to be and that was mostly sourcing fruit, um, creating relationships with uh, different farms and vineyards. And, you know, the unique thing for us is that we'll try to create these long-term agreements with properties. So some sources we've had for 20 years and other sources were, were just kind of trying out um, as we build the portfolio. But one of them that always spoke to us was the Obsidian Vineyard, which is in Knights Valley. It's on the Sonoma side, but it, it's close to the to the Napa border and probably three miles south of Peter Michael's um, you know, property. But it was a wine and a vineyard that always spoke to us. It, it's a dynamic site in that there's obsidian glass, volcanic material uh, strewn amongst the vines. It, it has this incredible aroma 
that I that reminds me of Northern Rhone or Cornas, just that petrichor kind of really um you know hedonistic um and then the age worthiness of it was incredible and we've produced 100 point wines you know from from this property so we we had an opportunity to buy that in 2015 and we we jumped at the opportunity um and, and it was our step to really affirm um what we wanted to do and and where we wanted to go because you know if you if you source fruit there's always people out there calling you you know a hobbyist or you know moonlighter and you know you asked originally how do you get into the business and i think you know a lot of these people were born into it right they uh, you know their italian you know ancestors or you know spanish ancestors or you know their parents or grandparents were hippies or something like that. And they went out there and cultivated the land and had a property or, you know, in a newer way, you, um, you sort of forge your own path and, you know, stake your, your claim and, um, you know, move forward that way. So this was our, um, kind of, you know, flag, um, to put in and Knights Valley and the obsidian, um, vineyard kind of spoke to us and, you know, our family, but, uh, sadly, like a lot of other people in the latest round of fires, um, we lost the vineyard in 17, meaning it was damaged beyond repair. So what we, uh, decided to do with our viticulturist and team is scrape the whole vineyard and, and replant it. And so, that hard decision that you need to make in a in a you know short amount of time which which is kind of funny because when you think of the wine industry you know it's not really a fast-paced industry you know these moves that you're making you know play out over a year at the earliest maybe two or three or four or five so you need to be very calculated with what you're doing um but anyways we replanted and the, the original property was Syrah with some Chardonnay down below. And when we had the opportunity to replant and we have uh, almost 20 years of, of knowledge and expertise, what would you do um, if you were forced to start all over again? And that's kind of how we looked at it. And we had all these uh, journals of, of data and analysis. And so we changed the orientation of the vineyard um, it was a very old site, late seventies. So the rows and the spacing were all over the place. We were able to, uh, really rein that in and plant, um, twice as many vines as we initially had. So we decided to harvest the, the vines that did survive, create our own nursery on property. So we'll have a heritage block that dates back to the original property. And then we planted two other Syrah clones, some Viognier to blend in, planted Grenache, Mouved, and then my brother and I really wanted to plant um, some Bordeaux varieties. So we we planted Cab Sauve and, and Cab Franc just a little bit um, to try out. So that's really exciting. Um, that'll hopefully be online um, in, in the next couple of years. Uh, we did that for the long haul in, in terms of, you know, how we planted, budded over and, and just wanted the vines to, and the roots to really dig deep. 
and mature so we could have that for a longer time as opposed to um, manipulating it to where you could be back online sooner. So it's uh, it's definitely a labor of love, but the narrative for Donlin is going to change because we're going to have more opportunity for state-driven wines and um, and really solidify that that piece of dirt in Knights Valley is something that we think is unique and one of the, one of the best vineyards in the world. Yeah. It's unfortunate that it burned down. That's a really kind of a cool opportunity that you don't voluntarily get very often. You're never going to rip out a hundred percent of a vineyard on your own. So um, I guess a couple questions. Well, first, just from a wine nerdy side, how, what spacing did you guys end up with actually now that you, and then how big is the, the whole vineyard actually as well? So the the whole vineyard is is ten acres, you know, but you have to have a road around it and you know easements and things like that. So I think we ultimately were able to plant about eight acres of it, and you know the the spacing, you know, I don't know what the appropriate term is, but it was um, you know basically getting two two vines per you know, whatever the stake, um, you know, spacing we, we had, which was basically twice as many as that we initially had, because in the old vineyard, you had every three or four rows, this wide row, which we imagine was used for some sort of machinery to get up and down. Um, and there was a big road right in the middle of the vineyard which was always nice because you could drive through and we did a bunch of tailgate tastings out there but basically you were chewing up uh, uh an acre and a half for for nothing so we we did away with that and so now we just have a road around and we'll eventually build out some um kind of hardscape tasting um, spots that people can kind of come to and sit in Adirondack chairs and overlook, you know, one side to Napa, overlook the other side, you know, over into Sonoma. Cool. Yeah. So the reason for our listeners, why I'm asking about the spacing is uh, traditionally say in Bordeaux, left bank or Burgundy, they're typically um, one meter by one meter. Um, The vines are kind of spaced across. That's kind of three by three. Um, And what this does is it basically allows the vines to compete with each other um, each year a little bit more. So that allows the concentration in each vine, um, the fruit to get more dense and become richer and just provide a really more complex wine. Um, That's as opposed to one vine producing a bunch of bunches where its nutrients are kind of spread out. So that's really interesting. And that's kind of an exciting opportunity for what your wines can be. Um, On the, the Viognier side, how much of you guys do you think you'll be putting into the blend? Will it be kind of that standard five, ten percent like Rhone? Is that kind of just for that aromatic lift and color fixing? Yeah, I mean, we have a great um property that we've been sourcing from since 2004, uh, the Kobler Vineyard. Um, Mike and Otto Kobler, you know, farm it two brothers, very interesting, you know, great family. And we've been the sole, you know, source of that property, um, which is in the Green Valley. And that's five acres of Syrah, one acre of Viognier. And for the last, I would say, 10 years, we've done 90-10. Um, you know, very early on, we were experimenting with, you know, 3 to 7%. But um, at, at some point, I think in the, 
you know, 2012, we decided, you know, 10% is kind of ideal for, um, you know, the color, the aromatics, um, and, and what we're looking to do. It'll be interesting to see, you know, how that, how that changes with, with this vineyard once it comes back online. So we'll definitely, um, do some, do some testing and, and kind of figure out and, just like every year, every vintage, we're really just trying to further uh, hone our, our expertise and understand what what the vineyard is really trying to tell us, and you know how can we, uh, you know, kind of pull that out even even greater. Um, so, yeah, I mean, ten percent has always been our magic number, but you know, we'll see with the with the new vineyard. Nice. And those are all co-fermented together. Exactly. Yeah. I think, I think one year uh, we were able to pick them around the same time, but typically they're picked separately and we just keep them on dry ice ready to go. And then we co-ferment them together. That's awesome. Um, I guess one last question and then Brady can hop in. I've been monopolizing this. Um, (laughs) uh, In terms of sustainability, since you were replanting, you got the opportunity to kind of, build that from the ground up too. What, what, are there any specific things you guys did, you know, aside from the rootstock choice, I guess, to really go for the sustainable and low intervention style? Yeah. I mean, everything we've done, um, sort of, you know, has this nothing added nor taken away, um, kind of mantra, meaning, uh, native, you know, ferments, natural yeasts, um, and yeah, that's kind of how we've we've done it with um, all the vineyards we work with are sustainable. Some of them are certified organic. Um, we we definitely had the biodynamic organic, you know, conversation and how we could do that, what that would mean. Um, you know, was it was it viable? And you know not all the time is it, is it viable? And, and also not all the time is it necessary? Um, you know, talk to some farmers and they feel very strongly, um, against, you know, that and saying it's just more money and it's more paperwork. And this is what I've been doing. Um, you know, the, the whole time, I don't need a, a piece of paper, uh, to tell me that. Um, so we, we kind of modeled out the the best sustainability um, that was going to work for for this vineyard, and um, it's basically you know dry farmed. You know we're we're only irrigating, you know uh, unless we absolutely have to, which is typically to save you know the the crop from dehydration and sunburn and th- and things like that. Um, but we definitely want that that stress, that, that vigor, uh, to come through, to produce, um, you know, grapes where it's, it's all, it's all killer, no filler, you know, and and just has that, that purity to it, that depth, that character. So. I like that all killer, no filler. I'm going to use that down the line. I think, I think that's, that's a great take on sustainability too, because, you know, you, you don't, ever want to try and fit a square peg into a round hole and and do things that you wouldn't otherwise do like you said to that you know may not 
in the long term benefit the property. Um, and you know, I, I think as consumers, it's you know the organic buzzwords that are out there um, don't don't always have an idea of exactly what goes into um, quote unquote certifying something as organic versus as you said, this is how we've always done it, whether there's a green label or or we've done the paperwork or not. Um, you know, we're all farmers at the end of the day and trying to do right by the land and do right by the final product. And I think that's the overarching sentiment that I wish consumers at least would understand a little bit more about is, you know, no one cares more about this product than. Um, yeah, I think, I think, um, yeah, as we, as we move forward and, you know, climate change, right. It's, it's obviously affecting different areas in, in a greater way than, than some areas. But I think the obvious thing is the last, you know, 50, 60 years, temperatures are up anywhere from one to three degrees in, in some places. And, um, I, I think that's going to matter, you know, more and more down, down the line. And, um, I, I would hope people would be prudent and not hasty about making predictions or projections on, um, you know, ripping out certain grapes just to plant other grapes thinking, you know, in 50 years, they're going to be, uh, the, the, the great prognosticator. Um, I, I think it should be a fluid thing. It, it should be something that potentially we can, you know, grow, um, grow into because I, I know a lot of people and, and farmers out there that, you know, have the opinion that it's not really um, affecting them. You know, drought is more severe, you know, fires are, are more severe than, than climate change. So let's, let's try to focus our efforts on that as well. Um, but you know different different elements i mean some people are using it to their advantage right i mean there's sparkling wine in in the uk again um so you know for us in northern california uh, i think the concerns for us personally are more about fires and drought and less about climate change um but that could change in you know five ten years 20 years from now um or maybe not yeah that's that's interesting. I mean, and the term climate change can be so broad too. It can be like the temperatures. Some people say those fires and droughts are, you know, the evidence of it happening. So to your point, basically doing, I mean, being sustainable overall, but doing what you can, you know, if it's a dry year, trying to figure out how to do that, trying to get the roots to go down deep and get water. Um, those are going to be the most important things. And that would help it through the fire times as well. If you have a well, you know, a nice, healthy canopy. Um so hopefully it won't there won't be another big fire like 2017 though in that area. Um but yeah, well is there um this has been great. I could go on forever about the viticultural questions, but I'll I'll save our listeners. Um is there anything else you're you're really excited about? Or I think we, we touched on it a ton for Donald. I just gotta get me some now. Um <laughs> is the main way to order on your on your website? Yeah, so we've um, you know our business model is direct to consumer. A lot of these boutique wineries, um, that's what they've they've done or they're starting to do, especially with the onset of the pandemic. Um, we've we've always done that way. Um, 
you know, we just like to have the direct relationships with the customers. Um, you'll see on our bottles, our, our tagline is wine is a journey, not a destination. And it's really just my father's metaphor for life in that, you know, life is not a guided tour. You need to, you know, go out there, create options and and live a little. And so how we brought that to the wine is knowing every customer is different and getting to know them better. How can we better serve them in, in terms of their wine needs, how they enjoy it, collect it, consume it um, by themselves with food, with friends. So that, that was always exciting to us when we could have that direct relationship. Um, and then, you know, financially, you know, to, to do wholesale for most small producers isn't viable just because it's a, it's a break even type, type thing. Um, you know, selling at a discount and then having to go work the market and sell it again and, and do that. Um, so we, we distribute a certain amount and we chalk it up for marketing because it is, um, I think valuable in some areas, uh, to have placements and shops and hotels and restaurants and things like that. But most people just go to the website or they, you know, hit us up on social media, um, get a referral from a friend and, and purchase the wines that way. And know that you're supporting a, a small business, um, as opposed to a big conglomerate. Um, and you know, cause you want good wine. You want to have great wine out there and that's how you, that's how you keep it sustainable. Keep it, keep it moving. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vent podcast, please email us at support at vent.co. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vent platform, find us at www.vent.co. That's www.vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular as amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vent platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal tax or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.